brothers and sisters, I would invite you to open in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 5, and as you are doing so, to please stand. Some of you may remember that we were working through a series in Lamentations, and then sickness came, and Advent came, and more sickness came, and so we are playing catch-up this morning. Um, we're going to try to conclude our look at Lamentations, which, which means we find ourselves in chapter 5 and this, this last chapter. So as I read it in your hearing, brothers and sisters, recognize that this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God for us this morning, and God means it to be a means of grace in our souls. So hear now what God would say to His church. Lamentations chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please go ahead and find your seats. You've no doubt heard it said that there are no atheists in a foxhole. If you don't mind, I think we can build upon that idea. There's also no atheists when you undergo your first chemotherapy treatment. They are also in short supply when the husband is ushered out of the delivery room because there is something wrong with mama and baby. In those moments, we would do well to reflect upon the fact that prayer is not merely some religious exercise. It's a lifeline. In those moments, it's, it's all you have because you need God. You need His grace. You need His presence. 
so that prayer then isn't just some ritual thing that you think you're supposed to do, but prayer is like oxygen to your lungs. You can't live without it. I remember years ago now reading a line from one of John Piper's books. It went like this. You cannot know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. And the problem is so many of us are comfortable Christians and we don't realize that we are in a war. We just assume that white flags have been waved and treaties have been signed. But that is simply an illusion. Our life is a life of war. And we would do well to know that prayer is how we call for reinforcements and supplies. The prophet Jeremiah understood this. As he puts pen to paper and he writes his laments, he does so keenly aware of the battle that is raging on all around him. And let's be clear, this is a battle that is not only physical, but it is also spiritual. I know, again, it's been over a month, but try and remember something of the setting. The the hammer of God's judgment has fallen upon His covenant people. Practically speaking, that means that Babylon has come in and they have overrun everything. So So that Babylon was the hammer and God's people the nail and God Himself was wielding that sledgehammer. We can scarcely overestimate the carnage, the destruction of the temple, the devastation of the land, the death of the people, the deportation of those who survived. This is all a haunting nightmare that they are unable to wake from. For the ancient people of God, they really were experiencing hell on earth. What makes it worse is it was their fault. And and they knew it. You see, it's one thing to to feel the sting of shrapnel. It is quite another to be the one who, who sort of pulls the pin on the grenade, right? God's people knew that this was no random event. Babylon's flag flying high on the horizon was no mere coincidence. Neither was there sorrow outside the providence of God. No, every single tear, it is all owing to their sin. God was abundantly clear. The old covenant promised blessings for obedience. But that same covenant also threatened curses for disobedience. And the whole long history of Israel is one that screamed disobedience. And so the curses have finally descended upon them. Again, it is hell on earth. Here's the point. Even in the soil of judgment, God intends there to be fruit that is born. And you see that here. Even in this, there's this little green leaf that pokes up through the dry dirt. I say that because in the face of disaster, the prophet cries out 
in distress. And what you can't miss is that that cry is the fruit. Repentance, prayer, it is fruit. So don't miss what's happening. You've got pressure and you've got pain and it has birthed prayer. You might say, sort of, the the caving in produces calling out. That's why C.S. Lewis would say that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but He shouts in our pain. Lewis says, it is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And by the time you reach the end of Lamentations, Jeremiah has been roused, to put it mildly. He's been awakened not just to sin and to judgment, but he's been awakened to God's power and to God's presence. Now, for the sake of clarity, I should add, that's what makes Lamentations sort of hairy, especially here in chapter 5. We call them chapters, as you know, really for the sake of convenience. But, but really, these are five poems or laments. But even that is only half true this morning. I say that because unlike the previous laments we've seen, the one before us this morning is less lament and more prayer. Lamentations 5 is a heartfelt prayer unto God. Just consider the first verse. It begins with a string of three imperatives. Remember. Look. See. But none of this is intended to be merely a cognitive exercise. By the prophet calling upon God in verse 1 to remember and to look and to see, he is crying out in prayer, calling God to act, to do something. As parents, we do this all the time, don't we? When we tell our children, for example, remember what I said about looking both ways before you cross the street, what are we doing? But calling them to act, to do something, to turn their head to the left and to turn their head to the right. Well, that's what Jeremiah is doing here. He is calling upon God to look, to see, to remember, to to do something about what has befallen him and his people. And this is true throughout chapter 5. Which means that we can say it is true that Lamentations is the bleakest little book in all of the Bible. And it might even be the case that this is the darkest chapter of them all. But we at the same time must say that this is also a prayer of last desperation. Jeremiah is on his knees and tears are filling his face. And he is praying. He is praying for restoration. He is praying for renewal. And therefore... He is right where he is supposed to be. So as we approach this last sermon here in Lamentations, my aim is clear. Let me lay my cards on the table. My aim is to stir in you a spirit of prayer. 
That is my prayer for me and for you, that redeeming grace would be captivated by the glory of God and therefore gripped by a fervent, desperate life of prayer, both privately and corporately. I want us to see that all of life is lived under God's providence, serving His ends for our good and His glory. And that in all of this, please hear this part, God is bringing us to the end of ourselves so that we would turn to Him in prayer. That's really the view from 30,000 feet. God wants us to adopt a posture of prayerful dependence. Which means, and this is where we're going to turn the screw, God is in the business of provoking us to prayer. So that'll be our focus this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is at work in your life, brothers and sisters, to bring you to utterly and completely trust Him. And what makes Lamentations 5 so uncomfortable is that God will use any and all means necessary to put you on your knees. To begin to see this, notice how God will bring shame into our lives in order that we would hit our knees. Just reflect upon the first ten verses. In the aftermath of God's judgment, the people of God are barely hanging on. I say that because the promised land has been forfeited. Verse 2. The boot of their enemies is on their necks. Verse 8. Food and water, basic sustenance, is considered a luxury. Verses 4 and 9. And the consequences for their sin is being felt in their bones. Verse 7. So if we could put a heading over the first part of this lament, we could do so with one word, and that one word would read, shame. That is what they are experiencing. And as a result, Jeremiah as representing the people of God here, he cries out in prayer. Now, in reflecting about these first ten verses, don't make the mistake of thinking that this is whining or complaining. To read, that to read the text that way would be to miss the point. I want to share something with you, something that I trust will be liberating. Are you ready? It is not sin to tell God the truth. Brothers and sisters, it is not wrong to pour out your heart to God, to weep, to see pain, and to feel pain, and then to turn to God in prayer. That's not sin. And that's what Lamentations 5 is. It all forces us to make a necessary distinction. It's the difference between complaining and lamenting. One is condemned, the other commended. The difference, you ask? Complaining is rooted in self-pity and is always self-centered. Lamenting is rooted in brokenness and is God-focused. 
which means here in Lamentations 5, the prophet is offering a prayerful lament, not a whining complaint. So with that distinction in mind, here's how I want to encourage you. God delights in your lament, in your prayers, in your desperate calling out to Him. He delights in them so much, know this, that God is in the business of bringing people, even people like you and me, to the end of ourselves so that you would come to Him, cast off what keeps you from Him, and confide in Him. If you step back and you look at any trial or tribulation in your life, any struggling, any sorrow, you can know that that is exactly what God is doing. He is at work in you so that you would come and that you would cast off and that you would confide. That is always the end game. Which means that Christ is something of a living parable in this regard. I say that because He came into our dark and dead world. And as the incarnate God-man, He was exposed to all manner of shame. As our representative, He was brought to the end of Himself, was He not? You will recall, he hit his knees in the garden, crying out to God. So dramatic was this event that Luke's gospel records that his sweat became like great drops of blood. You see Christ in utter desperation, crying out to the Father. And God heard him. God heard him. Christian, would you be encouraged? God hears you too. God hears you when you mumble through your tears and when you offer your desperate prayers. And God hears you because God delights in His people. Because God delights in you. On account of Christ, though you are robed in the shame of your sin and you are feeling weighed down by it, God turns His ear toward you anyway. Do you realize, dear Christian, there has never, ever been a prayer that you have offered that God has not heard? Never has that happened. And though the stain of sin may surround you, God promises us in Christ that one day you and I will be in His presence. Think about that. Your worst, most heinous sin cannot thwart the promises that God has given you and I in Jesus Christ. Not only will God use shame to provoke us to prayer, He'll also use suffering. I know that sounds difficult, but Lamentations 5 puts it front and center. In fact, verses 11 through 14 are actually quite chilling. We read that women are raped in Zion. 
the young women in the towns of Judah. We're told that princes are hung up by their hands, that, that no respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. We're told as well that old men have left the city gate, and young men have left their music. The, the, the picture not to be missed here is one of unparalleled suffering. It's, it's a horrific picture, is it not? Women are ravaged. Princes are tortured and executed. The elderly are just disregarded. And the people of God are subjected to abject slavery. So redeeming grace in light of this darkness, where ought they to turn? To whom should they look? And of course, the only answer is God. And so let me say here at the front end that this is one of the roles that suffering plays in our lives. God will bring great suffering into your life. Even the kind of suffering that we see in verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. The little verses that we don't put up on our fridges at home. God will bring suffering into your life to humble you to bring you to the end of yourself and to drive you to Himself. Beloved, God will use the greatest of evils to bring us into intimate communion with the greatest of glories. Suffering tends to birth sorrow. And that is true in our passage. Which also brings us to a third way in which God calls us to call upon Him. Sorrow. Sorrow, church, provokes us to hit our knees. Just as your heart pumps blood through your body, giving it life, so often sorrow moves us to deep, intimate prayer, which is a source of life. As an example, look at verse 15 and tell me what you hear. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. Notice, the beloved city of Jerusalem has now become a place without music, without merriment, without myrrh. Without mirth, rather. What did you hear? All you hear is the sound of weeping. In a lot of ways, it's the difference in our culture between a wedding and a funeral. Weddings, the good kind, are notoriously raucous and celebratory, aren't they? While funerals are painstakingly melancholy. And for those in Lamentations 5, life is one long, unending funeral. Verse 16 is equally troubling. That phrase there, the crown has fallen from our head. It has two possible meanings. On the one hand, it could refer to the end of the Davidic dynasty with King Zedekiah's capture by the Babylonians. On the other hand, and I think this is personally more likely, it could be just more of a general statement. One that expresses former prosperity and prestige among the nations, but now... It has come to an end that that prestige is no more. But regardless of how we interpret that phrase, the point is sharp either way. Pain and loss surround them. 
Grief is their friend, sorrow their enemy, and regret haunts them like a shadow. Tears are their meal, and they are being spoon-fed seconds. But beloved, the dread of tears so often yields the prayers of desperation. You know this to be true in your own life, do you not? Does not sorrow have a way of driving us to our Savior? Does not sorrow have a way of of moving us to the man of sorrows? Isaiah 53, 3. And in that way, it is good. Don't misunderstand me. Suffering and sorrow are not virtuous in and of themselves. Quite the contrary, actually. But nonetheless, in the hands of God... Our sorrow is good. Think of it this way. A scalpel can be a tool used for murder to take life. But it can also be used as a tool for surgery to restore life. And so it is with your sorrow and with mine. In the hands of the Holy Spirit, our sorrow directs us to our Savior who is our very life. Well, not only does this bring us to the end of this prayerful lament, but it also enables us to see God's sovereignty. Catch this. Shame and suffering and sorrow, they all provoke us to prayer. And here at the end of Lamentations 5, we discover as well that God's sovereignty provokes us to prayer. To begin to put your arms around this, take note of the contrast that exists between verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 reads, For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. It's the picture of Jerusalem, the the holy city, overrun by wild beasts, that is, by foreign nations. So so that verse 18 really stands as a signal. And the signal is things couldn't be any worse. God's people have been uprooted from God's place and they are no longer experiencing God's presence. This really is as bad as it gets. Enter the contrast. Verse 19, but. But... You, O Lord, reign forever, and your throne endures to all generations. Please don't miss this part because it is life-giving. Grasp a hold of the big picture here. What are they enduring? If not utter shame and suffering and sorrow, and yet none of it is a threat to God's sovereignty. Do you see that? All of chapter 5, and really from chapter 1 on, all the gnarly stuff that we've seen through the book of Lamentations, the gore, the pain, the loss, the death, none of it thwarts God's sovereignty. In fact, it is all actually the outworking of God's sovereignty. The triune God, verse 19, reigns forever. It is His throne that endures forever. 
to which you might ask the question, well, why is this important? Why is this important not just for them in Lamentations, but for me as well? Why is the sovereignty of God radically significant for the suffering saint, for the weak and weary Christian? Well, here's how it cashes out. No matter how hairy it gets, no matter how bad things are, God is still your Father. Christ is still your Savior, interceding for you at the right hand of God. And the Spirit is still with you, conforming you into the blessed image of Jesus Christ. And this is something that we must see. And I'm not just preaching at you, but but also to myself. We are so prone to view suffering and sorrow as if they are almost antithetical to our growth in grace. We, we think of suffering and sorrow as a parasite, as something that is bad. And so we stiff-arm it. The church it ought not to be that way. The fact of the matter is that suffering and sorrow is so often how God shapes us into the image of Jesus Christ so that we look less like us and more like Him. Think of Michelangelo's David. At one time, nothing more than a block of stone. Now, a 17-foot towering piece of art. How did that drab stone become something magnificent? By the artist picking up his chisel and going to work. So it is with us. God is the sculptor. We are the stone. And his chisel is our suffering and our sorrow. Those are the tools that God routinely uses to make us glorious. But of course, we revolt, don't we? We fail to see our suffering and sorrow is the soil from which the fruit of the Spirit springs. We are unable to see our pain and loss is often the womb that births life and joy in us. We simply refuse to see Trials and tribulations are the garden where the flower of mature Christ-likeness grows. And all of this to our detriment, I should add. We need to be convinced of this. We need to stake our life on it. We need to live in light of it. God is sovereign. And He is sovereign even in and through and over and around and behind and above every single ounce of suffering that you or I will ever experience. Every tear and every curse word, every sleepless night and miscarriage, every pain and sorrow, every loss and nightmare, every judgment and discipline, every single one of them are all Father-filtered. God has ordained it. God has not just permitted it, but planned it and purposed it. 
And you need to know, Christian, that no matter how hot the temperature gets in your life, God has promised that He will always have His sovereign and loving hand upon the thermostat. After five grueling poems of lament, we come to the end of it all, the end of chapter 5, and we here confessed through the parched voice of the one we call the weeping prophet. You hear verse nine, uh, 19, rather, but you, O Lord, reign forever, and your throne endures to all generations. Here's the punchline then. Here's your recourse. Because every tear is Father filtered, because God is sovereign, you can actually pray. Does that make sense? Too many immature Christians think God's sovereignty is an abstract doctrine worth fighting over. Beloved, the sovereignty of God is our only hope. Verse 19's confession of God's sovereignty is the foundation upon which the tower of prayer is built. All of chapter 5's prayerful lament rests on this foundation. Because without God being sovereign, the tower of prayer would collapse and it would kill everyone inside. Just imagine for a moment, if you dare, if God wasn't sovereign. Why pray? I mean, just be, just be real. It's okay. Safe space. What can he do? And if, and if he can't do anything, then why pray? Why bother? If Satan is running this show, or if it's the demons, or if it's Mother Nature, or if it's the free will of some seven billion people on planet Earth, if they are the ones who are really in charge, then why on earth would you bother hitting your knees? What an utter and colossal waste of time. What a magnificent exercise in futility if, in fact, God is handcuffed. If verse 19 isn't true, then Jeremiah has no reason to pray as he does verse 21. Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Christian, to pray to a limp-wristed Impotent God is utterly senseless. Thankfully, the triune God is utterly sovereign. Now I should add, there is an equally ugly error. Sometimes you will meet big-headed and shriveled heart Calvinists. And they don't pray either, but for different reasons. They can't figure out why they are supposed to pray since God is sovereign. Quite often, these are the same rascals who flash their reformed bona fides. Now, of course, a little digging will quickly re reveal that these same people never actually attend a prayer meeting anyway, and they certainly don't evangelize. Why would they? They are too reformed for all of that silly stuff. They are capital R reformed. 
which is really a euphemism uh, not for reformed at all, but for being retarded. I say that not to be snarky, though that is part of it. But I say retarded because that is what they are theologically and biblically speaking. They are underdeveloped. They have not matured the way that God would call them to. To both groups, those who think that God is handcuffed, as well as to those who think they need not pray because God is not handcuffed, both must see that the foundation for meaningful prayer is nothing less than the full-orbed, R-rated, 100-proof reality of God's complete and meticulous sovereignty. Throughout Scripture, and I mean like every page, God's sovereignty is always the wind in the sail of the saint moving him to prayer. And I'd have you to see that such a conviction gives rise to Jeremiah's prayer in verse 21. Again, he says, Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. The prayer is twofold, isn't it? Restore and renew. Restore and renew. It's as if Jeremiah is saying, Father, you have cast us off because of our sin. Please forgive us. We repent. We are sorry. We have seen the error of our ways. Now would you please bring us back to you? Would you please restore us? Would you renew us? Would you, would you deal with us again? Would you, would you take us to yourself? Because God, you are our only hope and our only life. Perhaps we would do well to pause and thank God that He has in fact answered such a prayer in the Gospel. What does God do in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, beloved, except restore us and renew us? Think about it this way. Though our sin had brought about death, the God of life gave up His life for us. Because God is holy, our sin drove Him far from us. But in Christ, He has brought us near, near through the blood of the cross. You and I, we are told, were once alienated and hostile to God. But in God's grace, we have actually become part of His family. Hear me well, Jeremiah's desperate prayer is answered most fully and most climactically by God as the Father reconciles the world to Himself through the death of Jesus Christ. Through that one life-giving act, we have been restored and we have been renewed. That's how the, the Gospel works. Repentance leads to the Redeemer who in, in turn restores and renews. Now given all we've seen thus far with respect to prayer, we would do well to reflect upon a couple fundamental assumptions baked into this whole thing. We're going to be very brief, but there are some central convictions that undergird prayer, both Jeremiah's in front of us as well as our own. Let me mention three of those central convictions. For starters, 
God hears. God hears. Prayer, beloved, would be an utter waste of time if in fact God was deaf or too far away or simply not interested. But undergirding prayer is the truth that God hears us. Psalm 34, 15 promises, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. Second, God doesn't just hear He also cares. This is to be fuel to the fire of our hearts. God delights in us. God cares for us. God is our Father and we His children. And believe it or not, our suffering matters to Him. Our sorrow is real and He knows it. God is not a stoic and He doesn't expect you to be one either. He woos us to Himself in prayer. For example, Scripture declares, cast all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. And then third, the central conviction that undergirds prayer, God acts. God works on behalf of His people, answering their prayers for their good and for His glory. This is why we must resist that urge, one that initially sounds super spiritual. It goes something like this. In prayer, we shouldn't ask God for anything. We should just praise Him and thank Him. And of course, there is a time and a place for that. Don't misunderstand me. But when the prophets pray like Jeremiah did here, they ask God to do something. When Christ teaches us to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer, it is riddled with requests. Paul models this for us in that famous passage on prayer from Philippians 4. We are told, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then James chides us for not asking. Remember, you do not have because you do not ask. So baked into prayer is the fundamental assumption that God acts on behalf of His people as we pour out our hearts and needs before Him. So Christian, let me pause. And let me ask you, are you building your life on these truths? Does your prayer life Reflect these truths. Perhaps, and I mean that, perhaps one of the reasons our prayer lives, both privately and corporately, so often appear anemic is because at the end of the day, we are not convinced that God hears or that God cares or that God acts. But He does. Oh, but he does. Now, I don't mean to suggest that prayer is easy. It's not. It's not easy. In fact, it's often messy, desperate, especially when pain is numbing and life is taxing and suffering and sorrow drain us. And in these moments, and dare I say, yes, sometimes prolonged seasons, 
if we are honest, even when we do pray, questions often remain. This was certainly true of Jeremiah. Even while standing on the rock-solid foundation of God's sovereignty, he still had questions. In fact, you can see them sort of crop up there in verse 20, can't you? Toward the end of this tear-laced prayer, he erupts, Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? You can almost hear his voice, can't you? He's desperate, and in his desperation, he is raw. I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in this. I I find great comfort as a weak and weary Christian. It's okay to ask questions. We get drained spiritually. We feel cast off and cast out. God's providence leaves us beaten and bruised and bloodied. And all of a sudden, with a limp, we might begin to ask questions. Tough ones, too. Questions that we don't ask when we gather in our community groups or gather for prayer with other Christians. We might ask questions that we think we're not supposed to ask. Questions like, well, given the wake of sin I just left behind me, can I actually be a Christian? We might have questions like, does God really love me? I mean, really, though? Because I'm a wretch. I don't love me. Heck, I don't like me. So how could God? We might very well wonder, will Christ receive me or reject me on that day? I mean, I trust him. but My faith is weak. And besides, my life is falling apart all around me. How, how can he be for me and me be his when there's so much collateral damage. It's not even uncommon for questions to turn into not-so-subtle accusations. Why me? What did I do? How come you do this to me? Haven't I been a good Christian? I mean, I go to church and I, I try and follow you and do what you say, but it seems like I'm always getting the short end of the stick. Sometimes the not-so-subtle accusations just sort of morph into full-blown accusations where we, we shake our fists at the heavens. This isn't fair. I didn't deserve this. I've tried to live the life you've called me to, and this is how you repay me? Maybe it's not even worth it. Well, in light of those sorts of raw emotions, let me just say this. That stuff is not off limits. It's not out of bounds. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't want to live there. You don't want to buy property there. But you can rent. Consider the testimony of sacred scripture. Job wrestled with these things, did he not? And it provoked him to ask hard questions. The same is true of David. The Psalms are chocked full of the deep wrestlings of a weary heart. You may remember even Habakkuk, the great prophet of God, had his own crisis of faith. And as you can see here, Jeremiah ends this string of lamentations with something of an ominous question mark. Here's the point, though, church. 
God has a purpose, a design in literally everything he does. First, everything is for his glory. And second, everything is for your good. And I should be quick to say that those twin realities are not at odds with each other. And part of our good, the, the main part actually, is our truly trusting and treasuring Jesus Christ. That's the aim. That's the goal. And one of the ways we manifest a heart that truly trusts and treasures Christ is how? Prayer. And so for our good, please hear that part, for our good, God will leverage all of creation, even shame, even suffering, even sorrow. God will leverage all of creation to bring us to the end of ourselves, all so that we would rely upon Him. I can assure you, when you put your head on your pillow at night and you're trying to figure out what is God doing in my life, that is one of the million things that God is doing. He's doing it in your life and He's doing it in this church. We are ever so slowly being weaned off of the poison of relying upon ourselves, and we are being thrust into the bosom of Christ. And hopefully you rejoice because that is right where we belong. So Christian, I would call you this morning to rejoice in your shame, to rejoice in your suffering, and to rejoice in your sorrow. Rejoice in these things because God is using them to bring you closer to Himself. And rest assured, your Father delights in you and delights to hear from you. The Lord Jesus Christ loves you and shed His blood to make you His own. And the Holy Spirit is with you, determined to never leave you nor forsake you. This is your God. Rely on Him. Rest in Him. And call out to Him in prayer. Let's do that together. Our gracious God and Father, we pray for the preaching of Your Word today that it would be a means of grace in the soul of this church. We pray that you would be doing whatever is necessary in our individual lives and in the lives of our family and in the lives of this congregation, again, to wean us off of ourselves and to bring us to you. Humble us that we might lift our eyes to you, our God and our Father. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.